The following sermon, entitled God's Providence in Marriage, was preached on the morning of September 25th, 2022, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. Let's open God's Word this morning to Genesis chapter 24. Genesis chapter 24. This is the account of Abraham sending his servant to find a wife for his son Isaac. We will begin reading at verse 10 after Abraham has made his servant swear an oath to find such a wife, at least to try to, for Isaac. And we will take the time to read the whole of the chapter. Genesis 24, beginning at verse 10. That is, from 10 to the end. And the servant took ten camels of the camels of his master and departed. For all the goods of his master were in his hand, and he arose and went to Mesopotamia under the city of Nahor. And he made his camels to kneel down without the city by a well of water at the time of the evening, even the time that women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, I pray thee, send me good speed this day, and show kindness unto my master Abraham. Behold, I stand here by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city come out to draw water. Let it come to pass that the damsel to whom I shall say, Let down thy pitcher, I pray thee, that I may drink. And she shall say, Drink. And I will give camels thy camels drink also. Let the same be she that thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac. And thereby shall I know that thou hast showed kindness unto my master. And it came to pass before he had done speaking, that, behold, Rebekah came out who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, with her pitcher upon her shoulder. And the damsel was very fair to look upon, a virgin, neither had any man known her. And she went down to the well and filled her pitcher and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Let me, I pray thee, drink a little water of thy pitcher. And she said, Drink, my Lord. And she hasted and let down her pitcher, and upon her hand, let down her pitcher upon her hand, and gave him drink. And when she had done giving him drink, she said, I will draw water for thy camels also, until they have done drinking. And she hasted and emptied her pitcher into the trough, and ran again unto the well to draw water, and drew for all his camels. And the man, wondering at her, held his peace to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. And it came to pass, as the camels had done drinking, that the man took a golden earring of half a shekel weight and two bracelets of her hands of ten shekels weight of gold and said, Whose daughter art thou? Tell me, I pray thee, Is there room in thy father's house for us to lodge in? And she said unto him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, which she bare unto Nahor. 
She said, Moreover unto him, We have both straw and provender enough and room to lodge in. And the man bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord. He said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master, Abraham, who hath not left destitute my master of his mercy and his truth. I being in the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. And the damsel ran and told them of her mother's house these things. Rebecca had a brother, and his name was Laban. And Laban ran out unto the man unto the well. And it came to pass when he saw the earrings and bracelets upon his sister's hands, when he heard the words of Rebekah his sister, saying, Thus spake the man unto me, that he came unto, me, unto the man. And behold, he stood by the camels at the well. And he said, Come in, thou blessed of the Lord. Wherefore standest thou without? For I have prepared the house and room for the camels. And the man came into the house, and he ungirded his camels, and gave straw and provender for the camels, and water to wash his feet, the men's feet that and the men's feet that were with him. And there was set meat before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have told mine errand. And he said, Speak on. And he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord hath blessed my master greatly, and he has become great, and he hath given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and men servants and maid servants and camels and asses. And Sarah, my master's wife, bare a son to my master when he when she was old, and unto him hath he given all that he hath. And my master made me swear, saying, Thou shalt not take a wife to my son of the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but thou shalt go unto my father's house, to my kindred, and to and take a wife unto my son. And I said unto my master, Peradventure the woman will not follow me. And he said unto me, The Lord before whom I walk will send his angel with thee, and prosper thy way, and thou shalt take a wife for my son of my kindred and of my father's house. Then shalt thou be clear from this my oath when thou comest to my kindred. And if they give not thee one, thou shalt be clear from my oath. And I came this day unto the well and said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, if now thou do prosper my way which I go, behold, I stand by the well of water, and it shall come to pass that when the virgin cometh forth to draw water, and I say to her, Give me, I pray thee, a little water of thy pitcher to drink. And she say to me, Both drink thou, and I will also draw for thy camels. Let the same be the woman whom the Lord hath appointed, appointed out for my master's son. And before I had done speaking in mine heart, behold, Rebekah came forth with her pitcher on her shoulder, and she went down unto the well and drew water. And I said unto her, Let me drink, I pray thee. And she made haste and let down her pitcher from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will give thy camels drink also. So I drank, and she made the camels drink also. And I asked her and said, Whose daughter art thou? And she said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bare unto him. And I put the earring upon her face and the bracelets upon her hands. 
And I bowed down my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord God of my master Abraham, which had led me in the right way to take my master's brothers, my master's brother's daughter unto his son. And now, if ye will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me, and if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing proceedeth from the Lord. We cannot speak unto thee bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before thee. Take her and go, and let her be thy master's son's wife, as the Lord hath spoken. And it came to pass, when Abraham's servant heard their words, he worshipped the Lord, bowing down to the earth. And the servant brought forth jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment and gave them to Rebekah. He gave also to her brother and to her mother precious things. And they did eat and drink, he and the men that were with him, and tarried all night. And they rose up in the morning, and he said, Send me away with unto my master. And her brother and her mother said, Let the damsel abide with us a few days at least, at the least ten. After that she shall go. And he said unto her, unto them, Hinder me not, seeing the Lord hath prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. And they said, We will call the damsel and inquire at her mouth. And they called Rebekah and said unto her, Wilt thou go with this man? And she said, I will go. And they sent away Rebekah their sister and her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said unto her, Thou art our sister. Be thou the mother of thousands of millions and let thy seed possess the gate of those which hate them. And Rebekah arose and her damsel and they rode upon the camels and followed the man and the servant took Rebekah and went his way. And Isaac came from the way of the well Lahiroi, for he dwelt in the south country. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field at the eventide. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, the camels were coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she lighted off the camel. For she had said unto the servant, What man is this that walketh in the field to meet us? And the servant had said, It is my master. Therefore she took a veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all things that he had done. And Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and took Rebekah, and she became his wife. And he loved her. Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Thus far we read God's Word. It's on the basis of this passage and many others that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 10. This is found in the back of our Psalters on page 7. Lord's Day 10 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What dost thou mean by the providence of God? The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were by His hand, He upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, 
fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, and all things come not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. What advantage is it to us to know that God has created and by His providence doth still uphold all things? That we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and that in all things which may hereafter befall us, we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father that nothing shall separate us from His love, since all creatures are so in His hand that without His will they cannot so much as move. In the Heidelberg Catechism, there is a close connection between Lord's Days 9 and Lord's Day 10. Lord's Day 9 taught us the truth that God is Father. And that He is the Maker of heaven and earth. That He created all things in the beginning by His Word. Lord's Day 10 follows that up by teaching us the truth of God's providence, how He upholds and governs all things in this creation. And the connection is that God is still caring for the creation that He made in the beginning. That is, God is not like a shipbuilder or a watchmaker who builds a ship or who produces a watch, but then once He's done with the work, really has nothing to do with it anymore unless some sort of repair needs to be made. That's not how God operates. But instead, having created all things, God now continues to care for His creation. He still governs and directs everything that happens here in this world. That's the truth of God's providence. And that's the truth that we want to consider this morning as we come to Lord's Day 10. But now in our consideration of this Lord's Day, rather than trying to apply God's providence to every aspect of life, and we could do that because God's providence does indeed extend over all things, nevertheless, this morning we are going to focus on one particular aspect of God's providence, and that's His work of bringing together a husband and a wife. That is, we want to focus on God's providence in marriage. And we do this for good reason. We do this because of the importance of healthy marriages in the church of Jesus Christ. It's important that our marriages are healthy for the sake of our families as a whole. For the sake of the, the well-being of the, the congregation. Because the, the strength of our families, the strength of the congregation so often goes hand in hand with the strength of our marriages. And what is more, it's worthwhile focusing on this aspect of God's providence because marriage is under attack. 
our marriages are being assaulted. The devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh wants nothing more than to destroy our marriages. And our enemies will use anything they can to do that. Including even the God-ordained differences between a husband and a wife. The devil seeks to use those things to, to drive a wedge between two spouses to destroy our marriages. And it's with all that in view that as we come to Lord's Day 10, we want to focus on God's work in bringing together husband and wife. And how, and then see how this truth of God's providence then helps us live in our marriages. So it's with that in mind that we consider Lord's Day 10 using as our theme God's providence, and then in parentheses, in marriage. God's providence in marriage. First, we'll look at the general truth of God's providence. Second, at the specific application to marriage. And then third, at the blessed Gospel and how this points us to our marriage to Christ our Bridegroom. First, the truth in general. As we read Genesis 24 this morning, did you happen to notice how many things had to happen just so in order for everything to turn out in the end? Consider for example, the journey that this servant has to make. He travels over 400 miles on camelback and he's carrying a load of wealth with him and yet he's not attacked by thieves and robbers along the way. He's not beaten and left for dead. And consider that he just so happened to arrive in the evening time, just as the women were coming to the well to gather water. And consider how the moment he gets done praying, it just so happens that this beautiful young woman comes walking toward the well so that when he looks up from his prayer, there, he is, there she is. And what is more, it just so happens that this woman is single. And it just so happens that God had worked in her heart a kind and caring disposition so that she's willing to give water to this man and water to his camels. And it just so happens that she's related to Abraham. There's so many things that have to happen just so. They had to go exactly right so that in the end, Isaac would be given the wife, Rebekah. And we recognize this is not the only passage in Scripture where we see this. Of all these little details, all these little things that had to go just according to plan in order for everything to turn out in the end. We see this when we study the life of Joseph. And how he's sold into slavery, how he's eventually put in prison, but then ultimately elevated to second in command in Egypt so that he can save his family. 
We see this in the life of Ruth. How she happens to marry a man from Israel. That husband happens to die. How she goes back and she happens to start working in the field of a man by the name of Boaz so that ultimately she's made a part of the line of our Savior Jesus Christ. We have this in the book of Esther. And how Mordecai just so happens to uncover a plot against the king. And it just so happens that he's not rewarded right away. But that later on in the history, the king can't fall asleep one night and they just happen to start reading from the the place in the record that talked about how Mordecai had saved his life and all that as a part of God's plan to preserve his church from the plot of wicked Haman. And we could give more examples of all these things going a certain way so that in the end it turns out. And the question for us becomes, why? What explains this? Is it just by chance? Random luck that it turned out that Rebecca was the one to come to Abraham's servant that day? Or are we to believe it? it's fate that there's this cosmic force that makes it so certain things happen that the way that they do. Is that what the Bible is trying to tell us? When it uses the language that it does for Ruth, that it was her hap that she started working in the, the field of Boaz? Or to use a different example that we haven't mentioned with regard to the, the death of wicked King Ahab and how the Bible tells us that a man drew his bow at a venture. He just shot at random. Is the Bible telling us these things happen by chance or by fate? What makes Genesis 24 so helpful for us this morning is that embedded into it is the explanation for why all these things happened just as they did. And that comes out from the confession that Abraham's servant makes three times in this passage. Three times he says, God did this. Does that first of all in verse 27. Just after he's met Rebekah, we read, and he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who hath not left destitute my master of his mercy and his truth. I being in the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. The Lord did this. Same thing in verse 48. And I bowed down my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord God of my master Abraham, which led me in the right way to take my master's brother's daughter unto his son. And then again in verse 56, hinder me not, seeing the Lord hath prospered my way. He's saying, God is the one who directed my footsteps. This didn't happen by chance. This wasn't just fate. But it was God Himself at work. And what the servant is doing is confessing the truth of God's providence. And it's on the basis of this passage and many others that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 10 concerning God's providence. And this Lord's Day teaches us that 
this work of God really involves two things. Question 27 reads, what doth thou mean by the providence of God? And the answer is the almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by His hand, now notice this language, He upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures. First, God upholds all things. Second, He governs all things. God's providence is that He upholds all things first of all. This is the teaching of Hebrews 1, verse 3, which teaches us that Christ was appointed heir of all things and is up, upholding all things by the word of His power. This is the teaching of Colossians 1, verse 17, which also says of Christ that He is before all things and by Him all things consist. And the idea of that word consist is that they're, they're held together. This is the teaching of Acts 17, verse 28, where Paul quotes approvingly of some poet who says of God, for in Him we live and move and have our being. These passages are teaching us that God is the one who upholds all things. That is, God is the one who sustains the creation. God is the one who causes the creation to continue to exist. And this is necessary because God alone is the only self-sustaining One. God alone has His existence within Himself. In contrast, the creation, as stable as it might appear to our human eyes, needs God's hand to continue to uphold it, to cause it to continue. That's part of His work of providence. He upholds all things. And second, he, He governs all things. It's the teaching of Isaiah 45, verse 7. Where God says, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. This is the teaching of Proverbs 16, verse 9, which tells us that a man's heart deviseth, plans his way, but the Lord directeth his steps. And it's in light of passages such as those two that we just quoted, that when we come to passages like Genesis 24, we simply recognize this is a specific example, a concrete illustration of God's work of providence, of His ruling all things. That is, He, he governs all things. He's the one who directs everything that happens in this world. And the extent of God's providence, His rule, is truly everything. For Scripture teaches us that God rules over seemingly insignificant events such as a sparrow falling to the ground as a hair falling from your head. God rules over the things that appear random to us. For Scripture teaches us that God is the one who controls the outcome of a lot. He's the one who controls something as seemingly random as a dice roll. He also rules over men and angels. For Scripture tells us that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and as the rivers of water, He turns it whithersoever He will. And God even rules over sin. So that when we are sinned against, we can confess with Joseph. Whereas 
someone thought evil against me, God meant it for good. So God's providence is His work of upholding and governing all things. Now standing behind that work are two things. On the one hand, standing behind that is God's counsel. His decree. His plan for all things. For as Ephesians 1 verse 11 teaches us, God worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. That is, God planned things in eternity and in time He's carrying out that plan. He's executing that plan. And the outworkings of that plan is what we see as His work of providence. So standing behind His work is His plan. But in addition to that, there's also His power. So we have God's providence, the work, and behind it His plan and His power. And the catechism itself points us to His power. It really identifies God's providence that way. What dost thou mean by the providence of God? It's the almighty and everywhere present power of God whereby He upholds and governs. That is, it's because our God is almighty. It's because He has this power, this strength that He's able to carry out His plan. He's able to execute His decrees so that everything happens just as He planned it. And the result of all of this then is that everything that takes place in our lives is not the result of chance. It's not due to blind fate. But it's all the outworking of His plan. And that means everything that takes place in this world serves God's purpose. His twofold purpose of bringing glory and honor to His own name. And His purpose of saving His church, His people out of this wicked world. That, very briefly, is the Reformed doctrine of God's providence. And there are five points of application that we can make in light of that truth. Still on this first point, two of them we draw from the passage that we read. Three of them we draw from the Catechism. We apply God's truth of this truth of providence first by glorifying our God, by praising Him for it. That was the response of Abraham's servant. In Genesis chapter 24, just after he meets Rebecca, finds out she's a relative to Nahor, we read this in verses 26 and 27. And the man bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham. His response is the response of praise. And that ought to be our response as well as we consider God's power, as we consider His greatness in controlling all things. This is reason to glorify our God, to sing praises unto His name. Second, the application is that this is encouragement to pray. That's what Abraham's servant does in the text. Just as he gets into town, as he's standing outside the well, we read in verse 12, Genesis 24, verse 12, and he said, O Lord God of my Master, I pray Thee, send me good speed this day and show kindness unto my Master 
Abraham. And then he makes his specific request, his petition to God. And the fact that he prays here, and that God answers his prayer in the way that he does, is showing us that the truth of God's providence and praying, those two things are not at odds with each other. And now, to be clear, as those living in the New Testament who have been given a richer measure of the Spirit, we ought not expect God to lead and direct in such an explicit manner as He does here for Abraham's servant. But nevertheless, God would have us to pray. Because a part of God's providence, what's included in God's providence, is the prayers that He works within us to pray. And God has so determined that He is going to work all things. He's going to govern all things so that He brings certain things to pass as the answer to our prayers that He Himself worked in us. And what all that means is that the truth of God's providence is not a discouragement to prayer, but rather it should encourage us to pray knowing that God uses our prayers as a part of His providence. Third, we apply the truth of God's providence by being patient in adversity. That's what the Catechism teaches us in question answer 28. What advantage is it to to us to know that God has created and by His providence does still uphold all things? First, that we may be patient in adversity. That is, there's comfort in this truth of God's providence. Because it means that when adversity comes upon us, when there are evils in our life, it's not by random chance. It's not on account of karma or some other cosmic force, but these things were sent by God's hand. He's in control of them. And when He allows them to come upon us, they're sent with a good and loving purpose. They are subservient to our salvation. And it's knowing that truth that enables us as God's children to be patient in adversity. So that rather than responding with anger at God for what comes upon us or anger at others who might hurt us in some way, instead we recognize this is God's will. This is God's work in my life. And He means it for good. And therefore, I can patiently serve Him. So there's patience. In adversity. Fourth, the application is thankfulness and prosperity. That's the next thing that Catechism mentions. That we may be patient in adversity. Thankful in prosperity. Because God does give to us seasons of joy. There are times where He he gives us many good gifts. And in light of the truth of God's providence, we recognize all of those things came from him, and therefore we're to acknowledge that and to celebrate God's providence in our lives. So the application of this doctrine is that it leads us to glorify our God. It's an encouragement to pray. It means we can be patient in adversity. Fourth, thankful in prosperity. And fifth, this gives us hope for the future. And that's the last thing the catechism 
brings to our attention in answer 28. And that in all things which may hereafter befall us, we place our firm trust in our Father, in our faithful God and Father, that nothing shall separate us from His love, since all creatures are so in His hand, that without His will they cannot so much as move. In other words, knowing that God has been and is currently working all things for our good means we can rest assured that He's going to continue to work that way. That just as God has been holding us in the palm of His hand in every facet of life, means we can be confident. We have hope for the future knowing that God will continue to care for His people. That from a very general point of view is the truth of God's providence and how it applies to our lives in different ways. Now having considered the general truth, we want to take the time to make specific application this morning. And that specific application concerns God's providence in bringing together a husband and a wife. That aspect of God's providence is really the main thing here in Genesis 24. Yes, we can see God's work of leading and guiding the servant, but all this is to the end that Isaac might be given a wife. That's the main thing here. That's how the the chapter ends. That's the reason we read to the very end of the chapter. Verse 67, And Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and took Rebekah and she became his wife. And he loved her and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And everything in the chapter then is God's providential work of providing Rebekah as a spouse for Isaac. And we have other biblical examples of this. We mentioned earlier the history of Ruth and Boaz. Now to be sure, the the book of Ruth is much, much more than just a love story of two people being brought together. But it does include God's work in their lives so that the two met and eventually were married and were given children. And it's on the basis of those passages of Scripture and many others that we recognize that this too is a part of God's providence of bringing a husband and a wife together into the bond of marriage. God has been doing this from the very beginning. He did this already with Adam and Eve. For after God created Adam and made him realize that he did not have a suitable helper for him, we read this in Genesis 2. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And now when the passage says he made a woman, the literal idea is that God built a woman. He built her in such a way that she would be a suitable helper for Adam. And then the text reads that he, he brought the two together. God by His hand led Adam and Eve together into the bond of marriage. 
And God still continues that work. That's the instruction that's included in the marriage form that is used in most, if not all, of the marriages between Protestant reform couples. After explaining the institution of marriage by God Himself, the marriage form says this, that God was, quote, witnessing thereby that He doth yet, as with His hand, bring unto every man His wife, end quote. God is still doing this. That is, God is the One who governs all of the details of our lives, all of the circumstances, all of the different situations, so that a man and a woman meet, they grow to love one another, they become engaged, and eventually they are joined together in the bond of marriage. That's God's work. And that means when we tell our own stories, when someone asks us as a married couple, how did you two meet? And what comes to mind is the, the past history. And as a married couple, we know all the little things, the, the details, the things that happened that seemed to hap- just happen right so that we, we met or so that there was an interest kindled. When we recount that story, we have to recognize we're really describing God's work of providence in bringing together husband and wife. So that in the end, we, we married the, the spouse that God Himself had determined for us from all eternity. He does indeed appoint to us a spouse. It comes out even in the language that's used here in this passage. In verse 14, for example, the servant prays, Let it come to pass that the damsel to whom I shall say, let down thy pitcher, I pray thee, that I may drink. And she shall say, drink, and I will give thy camels drink also. Let the same be she that thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac. Well, still to this day, God has appointed in all eternity a spouse. And in time, He, in His work of providence, brings together a husband and wife. But now, this truth goes deeper than God simply ordering all the events of our life so that a husband and wife met and grew to love each other and eventually married. Because it started before that. And that before we ever met our spouse or before we ever developed an interest in our spouse, God was at work Preparing that spouse. Just as God built Eve, made her to be the woman that she was so that she would be a suitable helper, so still today, God builds each one of us. He uses all of the, all of the life events that we have, who our parents are, what church we grew up, and a a thousand other things to mold us, to, to shape each one of us. And what He's doing is He's molding and shaping 
two who are going to be complements to one another. And now as complements, that means there's differences between us as husband and wife. There's differences in personality. There's differences in viewpoint. There's differences in how we go about things because of all of those differences in our upbringing and the different things that were a part of our lives. This is how God works. This is what God was doing with Isaac and Rebekah. This is what God was doing with Ruth and Boaz. And this is what God has done for all those in the congregation who are married. And it's so crucially important that we live as married couples in the light of this knowledge. Because there's a great temptation for us in marriage. That as married couples, we start to focus on all those little things that make my spouse different from me. The difference in personality. The difference in how he or she does things. The difference in viewpoint. And we start to become annoyed by it all. We let those things bother us. We start to become critical. Demeaning. We start to nitpick. It can get so bad that we reach the point that we really can't stand the person that we're married to. And when that happens, we start to look elsewhere. We start to covet a different spouse. We start to daydream. What would it be like to be married to that person instead of my spouse. We start to think about how my life would have gone if instead of marrying my spouse, I would have married my high school sweetheart instead. But congregation, it ought not be that way. Because of the truth of God's providence. God is the one who brings husband and wife together. And that means when we become critical of our spouse for those differences in personality, when we become angry at them, really we're becoming critical of God. We're becoming angry at Him for His work of providence in our lives. We're, we might as well be shaking our fist and saying, God, You messed up. We all recognize how sinful that is. And not not be that way. Instead of being annoyed with our spouse and critical for all these little differences, we're to appreciate our spouse. To recognize God is the one who picked out this spouse for me in all eternity. He's the one who was molding her and shaping her or him all of her life. And He's the one who directed us together. He He joined us in marriage. 
And therefore, we're to be content with the spouse that God has given to us. To be happy that He's provided for us a spouse knowing that He knows what's best for us. And as for the differences, well, we need to recognize that there are many things that are simply different. They're not right or wrong. And that needs to be said because of our tendency to elevate matters of personal difference to the level of being right or wrong. To be sure, there are matters of right and wrong that can affect a marriage. That can damage a marriage. There's Every marriage is a marriage between two sinners. And if our spouse is ensnared in a particular sin, then there is room for trying to address that in a meek, gentle, patient, and loving manner. Because a part of God's purpose according to the marriage form is that husband and wife might faithfully assist one another in all things. And that certainly includes our lives of sanctification. But having said that, my fear is that we too often take things that are not matters of right and wrong, not matters of sin against God or obedience to God, but matters of differences in personality, differences in how we view things, differences in how we might do certain things around the home, and we treat them as though they are matters of right and wrong. And it's when we do that that we, we allow those differences to annoy us and, to, and we start to become critical of our spouse and that ought not be. As married couples, we need to be able to step back and say, this thing that's bothering me, it's not a matter of right versus wrong. It's simply different. And that's okay. And really, it's more than that it's okay. Because when we bear in mind the truth of God's providence and how He was the one molding, shaping, building a spouse for me, really I should appreciate those differences. Because God was giving me a compliment. Someone who who fits together with me so that where I have strengths, My spouse may have weaknesses, but where I have weaknesses, my spouse may have strengths. God knows what He's doing in bringing together a husband and wife. And therefore, we're to love that spouse as our God-given husband or wife. That's the application for the vast majority of marriages. But there also needs to be a word for the broken marriages. And by the word broken, I do not mean that the marriage bond is dissolved in some way. But I mean that in some cases, on account of sin, the sin of adultery, the sin of drunkenness, the sin of unbelief, or the sin of abuse. 
the marriage is so damaged that it ends in divorce or a legal separation, or if husband and wife are still joined together, it is a truly miserable marriage. What then? Does God's providence still apply or did He mess up in that case? He did not mess up. Even in such cases, it was a part of God's plan. And it was the outworking of His providence that you were joined to such an individual in marriage. And He does have a purpose. And it's best not to try to figure out that purpose. Why did He have me marry the person that I did? Why did things have to turn out this way? But instead, we trust His character. That this is the God of wisdom. This is the God who loves me. And therefore, I know He will use this for my good. It means I can be patient even in this adversity. So it's the truth of providence that helps us live in our marriage, whether it's a good marriage, whether it's a broken marriage, or what's true for the vast majority of us, somewhere in between the ideal marriage and a broken one. But now all of that said, there needs to be an important word of qualification for the children, young people, and single young adults. Thus far, we've emphasized in this, port, in this second point that God and His providence is the one who picks out a spouse and who works all things so that uh, a young man and a young woman are brought together into the bond of marriage. And we've even said that in bringing together a husband and a wife, He's not bringing together two people who are carbon copies of each other. He doesn't bring... We never marry our clone, but just in a different gender. But that there are these differences. And that we should even appreciate those differences in our spouse. But that does not mean that I can marry anyone that I want regardless of the differences. That's not the conclusion that you who are single are meant to draw this morning. It's not the case that well, because God is going to use whatever differences there are in my marriage for my good, well, I can marry anyone I want. That means I can marry an unbeliever. Or I can marry someone who's Christian by name, but their walk of life is, shows otherwise. Or someone who believes in altogether different gospel than what I believe as a member of a Reformed church. Those are not the differences we're talking about. 
We're not talking about differences in faith. We're talking about differences in personality or how someone goes about a certain chore or somebody's viewpoint on a matter. Because the reality is that it does matter whom we marry. And we are to marry in the Lord. And that's the message of Genesis 24. Why does Abraham make his servant swear an oath not to take a wife from the daughters of Canaan? Is it because they were unattractive? Is it because they were poor? No. It was because they were ungodly. It's because they were unbelievers. And he sends his servant to find a wife from his relatives because they too fear Jehovah. He's sending his servant to find a God-fearing spouse. One who loves the Lord even as Abraham and Isaac love the Lord. So that the message of this passage to those who are single is marry in the Lord. And do whatever it takes to marry in the Lord. Abraham sends his servant on a trip of over 800 miles round trip on camelback through a hot desert land. He risks his life. He's carrying all these treasures. He might be attacked by a group of robbers. He might be killed along the way, but it's worth it. And so it is for us, for you who are single, do whatever it takes to find someone who loves God even as you love God. Marry someone who's one in the faith as you. And if you are unable to find such an individual at this point, then pray. Even as Abraham's servant prayed, God, direct my path, my footsteps so that I meet the One whom Thou hast appointed for me. And as you wait for Him to answer that prayer, trust His providence. Because whether we marry and when we marry, that too is under His control. That too is a part of the plan. And insofar as that's my adversity, insofar as that's my burden that I must bear, then we're patient in that too, recognizing at least at this time, if not always, but at least at this time, it is best that I remain single. But you may also take comfort, you who are single, and really all of us, but especially you who are single, that there will be a wedding day for you. Perhaps not in this life, but in the life to come. 
Because as God's people, we are a part of the bride of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the blessed Gospel. that flows from this passage that we've read and this truth that we've been explaining. For you see, God is at work to bring together the Bridegroom, Jesus Christ, and His Bride, the church. That is, just as God is at work, was at work in the hearts and lives of Isaac and Rebekah, Ruth and Boaz, you and your spouse, so God is the One who in a far more marvelous manner brings together His Son and His Bride. For you see, in eternity, God determined that His Son would marry. And God appointed a bride for His Son. In His decree of election, He was choosing a spouse, a people who would be the people that He gives to His Son. That's how Jesus even spoke of the elect. In the book of John, He speaks again and again of those whom the Father hath given to Me. And certainly that includes the fact that He's given the elect people to Christ as a bride. And in time, He's, he's preparing the bride for His Son. As He gathers His elect people out of darkness and into His marvelous light, as He brings them to salvation, as He incorporates them into the the body of the church, what God is doing is He's building a bride. He's molding her. He's shaping her into the One whom He has determined that His Son would marry. That's God's work of providence. With respect to the Son, having a spouse prepared for Him, He then came to redeem her. He came into this world. That is, He's the One who went on the journey, as it were. In Genesis 24, it's not Isaac who goes, but a servant for Isaac. But with the ultimate marriage, it's the Son Himself, not a servant. It's the Son Himself who leaves His heavenly abode. Who comes down into this world, into this wilderness. To find a spouse, as it were. He subjected Himself to temptations in the desert. He was willing to suffer all of His life long to be humiliated all in His pursuit to take to Himself the One whom God had appointed. And that meant paying the price for her too. To make her His own from a legal point of view with Abraham's servant, he, he gives a dowry. Speaks of Abraham's, the passage speaks of Abraham's servant giving gifts to Rebekah, but then also to Rebekah's brother and Rebekah's mother. And the idea is he's giving a dowry. Well, in a similar way, our Savior made a payment. 
Not jewelry, not riches, not wealth. But the payment of His own life. He redeemed us with His precious blood. So that from a legal point of view, we now belong to Him. And what is more, He sends His Spirit to now draw us to Himself. After Abraham's servant meets Rebekah and tells everything that happened, he asks, is she willing? The family wants to keep her at least ten days, but is she willing to go? And in God's providence, she was willing to go. Well, so it is with our Savior. He makes us willing to go and live with Him. And He needs to work that in our hearts and lives because of ourselves by nature. We want nothing to do with this Son of God come down from heaven. We hate Him by nature. And so He sends His Spirit into our hearts. He showers His love upon us and thereby causes us to love Him and to want to be with Him. And thus we're espoused to Him. We've been betrothed to our Bridegroom. We are married to Him from a legal point of view. And now as the bride... We look forward to the consummation of our marriage. To the day that we will live with Him. For though we are legally married to Him, we are not yet living with Him. He has left us for a time. He went ahead to prepare a place for us. A place where we might live with Him so that like Rebecca, we're waiting to see the face of this One who is our Bridegroom. We're longing for the day that we get to see Him and to live with Him. And it's knowing the truth of God's providence that all things are directed by Him that we can be absolutely confident that day will come. Because God is working all things for the coming of that day. Everything in His plan right now is building up to that day. The day when it's not the bride walking down the aisle toward her husband, but it's the bridegroom riding on the clouds of heaven to come for His spouse. To take her to Himself. To come and live with Him in the place that He has prepared to enjoy the wedding feast. to enjoy the perfect marriage. That every other marriage is a a mere and dim picture of. That's our hope. That's our longing. And even as we wait, we take comfort knowing that the time that we have to wait is also a part of God's providence. He knows just the right day for the Savior to come again. And it's when His bride has at last been fully gathered and put together, as it were, as the spouse of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray.
Father in heaven, we thank Thee for Thy Word. Apply it unto our hearts. And use it for the good, especially of our marriages. Hear this prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.